Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Deb Desenza, had a baby at 30 weeks gestation. She said she had the means, the resources, the education to ensure her daughter Becky had the best of care. But as she tells us, not all families are treated in the same way. I have families who reach out to me all the time and talk about the systemic racism they've encountered in the NICU or after the NICU in the pediatrician's office, the specialist's office. There's many slights that happen. They get ignored. They don't get access to materials for education, any resources. They literally get ignored. My guest on the podcast today is Deb Desenza. Deb, you're very welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. Thank you for making the time. 18 years ago, you gave birth to a beautiful baby girl. Tell us about that experience. Well, it actually goes back a month before she was born. I was going to my OB for a regular checkup. And I said to the OB, I said, I'm nervous. I think this baby's coming early. I was born a little early myself. And I'm just worried. I'm reading the labor and delivery section of the the expectant book you know, intensely, like I'm studying it, like I'm preparing intensely, and I shouldn't be ready to do that yet. So she's, oh, no, no, this is your first baby. You'll be late. Don't worry. You'll be late. And I'm like, are you sure? Because I'm really nervous. I'm really nervous. Well, okay, I took it to heart. I listened to her. And a month later, there I was an hour outside of town. And We had just gotten back into the car. We'd had a family outing with my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, and their kids. And Greg started driving, my husband, and I felt my bladder let go about 10 minutes out. And all I could think about was, oh, my God, I've I've had an accident. How embarrassing is this? And it's like, I need to go to the bathroom. Didn't say why or what. Just said, I need to go. And he pulled over to a grocery store. I got out, trudged all the way to the back of the store and completely freaked out when I realized I pulled down my pants. It was obvious that my water had broken. I was gushing fluid everywhere. I started crying and I'm in hysterics all alone in that bathroom wondering, what do I do? What do I do? I'm trying to clean up. I'm trying to clean up. It wouldn't stop. And all I could think of was, I'm so sorry, Becky. That's all I could say was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And just trying to figure out what to do. And then suddenly, just like everything sort of snapped really quick, I became extremely clear and focused and calm because I realized that my reaction, it was going to do nothing. So I needed to advocate for my daughter and for myself. And I suddenly became an adult, which is great. And I ended up cleaning up and I went to the front of the store. This was in the day when the cell phones wouldn't really get to have great signal. And really um, calling everybody, I was getting their voicemail. It was awful. So I went to the front of the store. And as I was going to head out to the car directly, I happened upon the store's office. And I said, excuse me, um, I believe I'm in preterm labor. And it was, I'm watching their jaws hit the floor. They, they, and I said, um, where's the nearest hospital? And they said, well, we're not from here. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, may I borrow your phone then, please? Yes, I need to call my doctor. It's going to be long distance. Don't worry about it. Do you need anything else? 
yes, my husband's in the green Durango in the parking lot. Can you please ask him to come in here? And I mean, I'm just like totally calm. It was ridiculous. When I think back, I'm like, wow. Well, it, I don't know. Pregnant brain took over and said, must advocate. <laughs> it must be calm. And so I, I called the doctor's office. It's a Saturday. I get the answering service, of course. So I leave the information. And by that point, my husband and my brother-in-law had come into the office and had heard what I had to say. We decided to get on the road and hit, hightail it back to Northern Virginia, an hour outside town. So we'd get back there and go right to that hospital where my doctor would be. So we're doing all that. And my husband is driving like the true father-to-be he is, except he's really panicked. And he's driving like a maniac. I mean, it was like it was like every every stereotype you have of the new dad to be. And meanwhile, I'm in the front seat, gushing fluid everywhere, and I'm turning around to my sister and I'm going, "Okay, Miriam, what is labor? <laughs> when do I ask for the epidural? When do I do this? I I haven't had a maternity tour. I haven't had Lamaze yet. It hasn't. It's thirty weeks." And she's like, "Okay." So she gave me the the bare bones information. I'm like, okay. Okay, okay, we're we're transmitting um, information. My husband's driving like a maniac. All of us should have taken the keys out of his hands. <laughs> we should never have driven. But we got there. It should have been an hour. We got there in forty five minutes. So he was he did a good job. We all got there alive. So I went into labor and delivery. They checked me in, set me upstairs, and next thing I know, I'm in a room. And I'm on a stretcher and they hook the, uh, the monitor up to my, my belly and they're moving things around. We hear the heartbeat. I'm like, oh, thank God. We heard the heartbeat. We heard the heartbeat. My husband's there. I heard. And then all of a sudden I heard the heartbeat start to go away. And I screamed because I didn't know. And I'm thinking, I'm going to have to have a C-section like right now. You know, I, I didn't know. I had no idea. And they came running in. They moved things around. Becky obviously had moved. Okay, fine. She's there. And we joked, we said, Becky, you're being a drama queen. You're being a drama queen. And we were trying to keep it as light as possible and trying to keep, I was trying to keep very, very calm. I knew that stress was not going to help the situation at all. Um, So I sort of compartmentalized my emotions as best as I could. And that's weird to think about now, but I did. And the nurse, I will never forget this. And the nurse came in. She asked me some questions. She said, well, did this happen? Or did, when did this start? And da, 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 da. And she wanted to know certain things. And then she said to me, you know, if you'd come in before now, we could have stopped this. And I remember just thinking, I, I didn't have a snappy comeback at the time. But now, if I were to talk to her right now, I'd be like, yeah, that would be a month ago with my OB telling her that I had been born early. And here we are. But, you know, that's the way life works. And I really had quite an experience in labor and delivery. They put me through 30 hours of steroid shots and the different different things to stop the labor. I had mag sulfate, which made me feel like I'd had a stroke. It was insane. So 30 hours later, it's 10 minutes to midnight on a Sunday night at, um, on grandparents day. So I remember the nurse coming to me and saying, you'll be delivering tonight. And I just looked at her like, 
I looked at the clock, it's 20 minutes to midnight. Becky was there 10 minutes later. And I just looked at her, I'm like, no, I can't. Like, this was an excuse. I can't. I need the epidural. <laughs> I'm supposed to get this magical epidural. It was ridiculous. And uh, she's like, no, I said, I haven't even had Lamaze. And she's like, I'll teach it to you in five seconds. I'm like, okay. And she did. And I, I took hold of those instructions, followed it to the letter, letter and bam, Becky showed up 10 minutes later. My doctor couldn't even show up on time. She literally was rushing around the parking lot trying to find a space in the parking garage. And I, I gave birth to Becky. A resident came in and, you know, he just, he said, okay, push, boom. Um, we heard a tiny little kitten cry. I was so grateful. We really, we were so relieved because we didn't know. And even though a neonatology consult, consultant came in and he said, well, if she were born right now, she'll be fine. And I didn't know what that meant. He didn't define that. I didn't know what to ask. My brain is going in millions of directions and I'm trying to stay calm. So really for me, I found that the biggest uplifting moment for me was right after Becky was born when she cried and I heard the entire room of nurses and doctors just go, oh, they were very excited. They were celebrating it. They held Becky up to me for a minute. They had warned me ahead of time that they would do that. She was covered in a little bit of the fluid and everything, but they just held her up to me. And in my beautiful mother moment, did I say I love you? Uh, did I say anything poignant like that? No, I said, hi there. <laughs> That's what I said, hi there. Because in my brain, she isn't supposed to be here yet. And I'm trying to reconcile the weird clock and the weird math that is now happening. They, they pulled her away. They took her down to the NICU. And that's the neonatal intensive care unit, also known across the world as the SCABU, the special care baby unit. And so my husband zoomed after her and I was left behind. Um, I delivered the placenta and my doctor showed up and said, hi. I went, okay, we, we, we did it. We, she's okay. I think she's okay. And they had actually given me as one of the things they said to stop the labor they gave me a drug to make me fall asleep. So I was on a heavy, heavy sedative and I started to fall asleep and they had stitched me up, but I don't remember anything after that. And next thing I know, I'm in an elevator and they're taking me into the NICU. They're wheeling me right in. I, I was shocked. I'm like, I've just given birth. Why am I going in here? I didn't know. My husband had asked them, to bring me down so I could see Becky. So I did, but the, the worst part was I'm drugged up, I'm a mess, I'm half asleep. And what do I hear but all the alarms of the NICU? I hear all the noises, the alarms. It's very stressful, very chaotic. And there's Becky. And thank God she's crying, but she's crying. So my body is reacting to her. And my brain is like very alert. And I'm just like so stressed out and I don't know what to do. And I can't do anything for my child. I'm on a stretcher. She's on a warming table. Can't do it. Then they pulled me away and, and brought me to my room and said, okay, now you rest. And I'm thinking, I can't rest. My brain was on overdrive, complete overdrive. And I was completely and utterly a mess. And all I could think of at one point was just, okay, she's born. Your namesake is your Grammy who's in heaven. You take care of her. I got to rest. That was the only way I could let go and let go of control because 
there was it was it was an illusion that there was control, but that was the way I could handle it. So I slept. And she spent 38 days in the NICU. I had an experience that that really magnifies what families go through in terms of one, not having great experiences, not being communicated to, being judged and being bullied. It, it wasn't every single scenario, but it was a couple that really stuck with me. And I was also learning my mother's instinct and I didn't even know it, but I was saying things and I was speaking up and I was trying hard to, but I didn't know what I, I did. I figured I didn't belong there. I felt like a visitor more than I did a parent. And I have to say that parents really, I mean, the, the nurses are wonderful. They now do. They have the the family-centered care program in place, and they had not had it at that point. But every NICU nurse and neonatologist, if you're in here and a lactation consultant, whatever you can do to help boost that mom and remind her that she's the expert of her child, you'll be doing her a great service because that's very, very important. So I would say that that's, that's a big one. That's a big one. I'm intrigued by your comment that you felt judged. Why would somebody judge you? I mean, you didn't do anything to bring on the labor. You had an inkling that this was going to happen. And the day it happened, it just happened. So why would they judge you? I think the nurse in the labor and delivery unit was asking certain questions, and it was obvious to her that and I'm sure she gets this all the time that, you know, patients come in and they don't know anything, but something's gone wrong. And in my case, I mean, I hadn't even had Lamaz yet. I hadn't even had, I've been just going to my OB checks. Nobody's talking to me about anything. I knew I had a maternity tour coming. I think it was supposed to be that weekend, actually. I mean, I really, honestly, it was just, she, she probably just wanted to focus her frustration and, you know, because I think for them, they see that as a failure. And for me, I see it as a win. Becky is alive and and she's now 18. And so um, the fact that I was able to do all that, get through all those hoops and get to the hospital and deliver her safely is huge. That wasn't how I felt originally. I felt very guilty about all that. And that's a very common preemie mom type of thing. And it's a very emotional experience, not only at before the birth, but after the birth. And their parents still, I mean, their kids are fully grown adults and they still cry every birthday. I don't cry every birthday. I just, I kind of think back quietly and go, wow, what a ride, what we've gone through. It's incredible. It's, it's just, it has been an amazing ride for us. But she she spent 38 days in the NICU and she came home on oxygen and a monitor. And she ended up getting back into the hospital to the PEDS unit a couple of days, like five days later. We were having a lot of feeding difficulties. And I was really clear with the team when she was coming home. I said, you know, I'm not too sure if she's ready. They were forcing the feedings. I mean, it was, they were trying to get her out. I'm sure insurance had its part in trying to push her home, but I didn't feel ready. I felt very nervous. And yeah, we had a lot of alarms. She was spitting up and we were, she was having a lot of trouble breathing. And finally I was like, we need to do something. And so we got her back in. So 
talk a little bit about what it's like when you have a premature baby. So for a lot of people, they won't recognize that there are some very significant physiological changes that happen in that last month or two months before the baby's born. And of course, a premature baby hasn't had it happen. And that's why they were giving you the steroids and other things to speed all that up. But what is it like once the baby's born? What hoops do they have to go through to get the baby to thrive? The big one, obviously, is lungs. I mean, they need them to be able to breathe. And then they need to regulate their own body temperature. So thermoregulation is another step that baby has to go through. So that's why the baby's in an incubator. But early on, Becky was on a warming table so they could attend to her if they needed, if there was more of an emergency. But the incubator kept her nice and warm. She was in her little nest. They work on developmental types of things. They helped, They had some devices around her to help her keep comfortable. And they, they now, I think, do a lot more around um, head shape because she did have plagiocephaly, but she was fine in the end. But they, they work through the thermoregulation and the breathing, and then they work on all these other things around the heart and uh, making sure everything matures as it should. Otherwise, they have to do procedures, like with her heart. She had three heart defects. She had a PDA, ASD, and a VSD, all little holes, basically. So they basically should close on their own. Hers just took a little longer. We saw a cardiologist for about 18 months after she came home. And yeah, I mean, babies often need blood transfusions. She ended up getting very sick. The ICU is a place where germs, you do not want these babies to have any germs. It, their immune systems are like nothing. It's zip. So we were hand washing like crazy. We had to hand wash up to our elbows just to touch our daughter through the little portholes of the incubator. And um, she needed the bilirubin lights because she, her bilirubin count was too high. So she's under the lights. We actually had a hurricane hit Hurricane Isabel hit the area and it was a very dangerous hurricane. Well, while we're at home trying to survive a hurricane and I've got a job I'm still going to as well, my daughter, she's in the in the NICU under the billy lights, and I'm just laughing, saying she's under, you know, she's kicking back at the beach. Is basically how we joked about it, because that was the only way we could handle it. It was just one more thing, you know, one thing after another with us. So yeah, but she, the interesting part for me, beyond all the typical stuff, like the feeding that they have to learn and just how to, you know, be able to exist outside the womb and outside the ICU is, is basically the, the fact that they're just maturing everything and all the little pieces and parts that did not grow yet, like eyebrows and eyelashes they're coming in. You literally can see, I could see her eyebrows and eyelash. I could see little, like little red dot, little red dots of hair and little flecks of red. Cause she had red hair early on. It was amazing to watch that. I was like, wow, I'm watching development in action. Like right, right there. It was, it was surreal. She also had her ear was flopped over on one side. And I thought, oh, okay, she's probably got a deformed ear. Well, the next day it was flipped up. So <laughs> literally watching her ear cartilage work. And yeah, she went through hearing tests. 
they did everything. I mean, she she got well checked out in the ICU. She definitely did. And she uh, they had to make sure developmentally they wanted to assess her and make sure she didn't need developmental help at home, which in, in the United States, there is a program called Early Intervention, which provides an evaluation of a baby. In her case, it was in the NICU. Um, but most kids, it would be at home. They would come in. So then they have therapists come out and help the child. So the whole idea is to mitigate disability as much as possible by, by neuroplasticity. It sounds like you had great care from all sides, pediatrics and, as you said, cardiology, neurology, and all the rest of it. But that isn't the experience for every mother who goes through this experience, and you've become a champion for that cause. Do you want to talk a little bit about the things that happen to some people? Absolutely. Well, in my case, I had nurses who, you know, again, I had a little bit of bullying about breastfeeding or not breastfeeding and all that, but I, I had privilege. I had, I had the skin color that, that got me that privilege. And I have families who reach out to me all the time and talk about the systemic racism they've encountered in the NICU or after the NICU in the pediatrician's office, the specialist's office. There's many slights that happen. They get ignored. They don't get access to materials for education, any resources. They literally get ignored in the NICU. And I'm thinking, we're, we're, uh, we're in the United States. We're supposedly innovative in what we do, and yet we're purposely ignoring people. We want them to fail. And that's to me, is wrong. And I feel that you know, every mother should have the right to find her way as a parent in the NICU and be supported. And that parent has to take that baby home. And that parent is the expert of her child. So, I mean, first and foremost, she needs to be recognized. It doesn't matter the color of her skin, what language she speaks, whatever. These barriers need to stop. And we, we need to understand that these are the children of our future and the future of society. And we've got to do the right thing by them. And so for me, one of the organizations I run is I'm the co-founder for the Alliance for Black NICU Families. And while I am not black, I do understand a small smidgen of it because I am Jewish and I was very olive-toned as a child and until into my adult years. And I understand the problem with that. I do get it to a degree. But in talking with the community, they feel comfortable coming to me because I'm, I accept everyone as they are, who they are. I, I see them as the expert of their own life. And so they come to me and they tell me about all these things that are happening. And I just, I, there are times where I've, I've just literally wanted to bang my head against a wall going, I cannot believe you were treated that way. That is awful. But the reality is you can believe. and. Parents are getting ignored. They, I had one family write in one of our surveys that their child was having trouble in the NICU. They literally were asking for help. And they said, you know, this is a problem. This is a problem. And they're like, no, oh, no, no, no big deal. 
Well, the parents then played the card and said, quite frankly, they're like, yeah, we're in healthcare. We do know there's something wrong. And suddenly they turn, they change their tune and they help the child. I mean, wh why does somebody have to do that in order to do the right thing? <laughs> this baby needs help. This baby has no voice. And so it's the parents who have to step in and help. And the last thing someone wants to deal with is that kind of horrible behavior in a, in a place where they're extremely vulnerable. And to me, we, we've got to do better. We've got to provide racial and health equity training to these professionals. I, the Black Lives Matter movement was happening right around this time in 2020 when this all went down with us. And I reached out to the African-American parents that I knew who were preemie parents or NICU parents. And I said, you know, I love you and I support you. I just, I can't go protest. I'm immunocompromised. And they said, we, it's okay. We appreciate it. We love an ally. Okay. And then I thought about it and I was like, okay, one of you is starting a racial and health equity on demand program for the NICU preemie space. It's called Once Upon a Preemie. I highly recommend it. Janae Johns is amazing. And you know, how do we lift her up? How do we lift up her organization? And so that's how the Alliance for Black NICU Families started. I reached out to them and I said, what if we did a policy push? What if we went to every licensing board for every state for NICU nurses and neonatologists and for NICU social workers and lactation consultants and require and say, we want to require this type of training and have it so that our community is on the letterhead that we have a petition and we have survey data. What if we did that? We could do it. And they were thrilled. So we started that. We got our nonprofit by the end of the year, 2020. That was much faster than expected. And then we were about to launch our first breast pump program where we actually give away a pump, a quality pump to the mom. And they would apply through the hospital, through the NICU, through their either a lactation consultant or their, uh, their NICU social worker. So, I mean, we just, I, I was like, fine, how do we equalize this? So a breast pump is a great way to do that. They can take home the pump, they can use it. So give that baby breast milk and help that baby thrive. That helps the mom, helps the baby, and it helps society. It's the right thing to do. It's an equalizer. So we're our next project after that will be a safe sleep program so that we can actually equalize giving the baby like like those halo sleep sacks that they have, safe sleep materials, and also maybe if they don't have a crib, because that can be an issue. I mean, parents, by by large, you can't really afford a lot of stuff. It's, it's expensive. So maybe a, one of those pack and plays or something so the baby has a place to sleep that's safe and just make it easier for them. You mentioned in your story that you were discharged or your baby was discharged from the NICU early and you felt that there may have been an insurance element to that, that they, they needed the bed or whatever the situation was. Had you been from the community that you are now trying to support facing that situation, what would have happened? Oh, well, I mean, a lot of a lot of babies in the NICU, I was on private health insurance. 
In fact, I was running the company and I'm the one that signed off on the health insurance policy. (laughs) So, and even I had difficulty dealing with the insurance company, but a lot of babies, depending on their weight or other conditions, they would be covered under Medicaid automatically. And, but some of these families do go on Medicaid anyway. And I'm sure there's a huge push to get them out the door. And I'm sure that there's probably things that are done that try to get them out the door even faster because for Medicaid and everything that I've learned about Medicaid, while it's it's wonderful to have insurance, it's unfair to have unequal insurance because I can go to a doctor for my daughter. I can go to anybody in our plan and that's fine. There's a large network. A lot of Medicaid recipients, when they go to see, say, an ophthalmologist for their baby upon the NICU. Yeah, a lot of them don't take Medicaid. Their child has to be seen by an ophthalmologist within two days of being discharged. So if they don't have that, how do they? How does that get done? Medicaid doesn't make it easy and it, there's no equalization about it. And I wish I could change that whole system because it's highly unfair, not just to that baby, but that entire family and to society. I, they should be able to go to a doctor. They shouldn't have to wait for appointments. They shouldn't be told that they cannot come see the doctor because their insurance isn't taken. And it just, it, it's unfair. It's, it's unfair, but it also impacts the prognosis for this child because the child is not seen on time. What are the consequences, the long-term consequences of this kind of policy? The babies are at high risk for numerous behavioral and developmental disabilities. So like in the case of my daughter, I'm, I'm the mom who spoke up, became an advocate. I am educated. I have access to insurance. I have, even I had trouble. <laughs> Even I had trouble trying to get my daughter access to things. Early intervention, she did not qualify for it. Her developmental milestones in the NICU, they said her muscle tone looked great. Everything's good, da-da-da. Okay, the only thing I had was an option on the paperwork was to have her followed by the health department. They had an infant monitoring monitoring program. And the other was the NICU had a follow-up program that we would go a couple times every six months. Okay. So we signed her up for that right away. And thank God I did because it was the health department who was following everything and kept telling me what was going on. I was like, all right, good. By the time Becky got to 18 months gestational age, she literally, she, I'm sorry, calendar age. She literally said to me, oh, she probably won't qualify, but you know, take her in, you know, get her evaluated. Okay. So we did get her evaluated and she got into early intervention at that point. She had, was severely delayed. She was globally delayed. I now look back and realize I think I was in denial. But having people watching her was huge because I don't think I would have had the wherewithal, the understanding or the education of developmental milestones to know when she would be delayed or truly delayed when it was a real problem. So this is Becky at 18 months of age going into early intervention. She had occupational therapy, she had speech therapy, and she ended up with physical therapy in the end. 
and she got kicked out after seven months and she did great and we were very proud of her. And then she got, let's see, she got kicked out of early intervention and then Shortly a time later, I met with the coordinator. I met with her at a conference we were both at. And I said to her, um, Becky's limping a little bit. I'm concerned about her, her walking, her gait. And she said, oh, okay. Well, she came out, saw Becky. She's like, well, her heel cord's a little tight. Okay. But yeah, no, she looks good. She looks good. Okay. So nothing, nothing. Okay. Just keep going. You know, go ahead and have her evaluated before preschool if you're concerned. So, because I wanted to. And so I did. They're like, oh, she's doing great. She's doing great. Okay, good. And and with that, move ahead towards kindergarten. I said to the entire team around a conference table, this is the school principal. This is the different therapy specialties in the school. So like OT, PT, speech, all that. And, uh, and a whole bunch of other people, her teacher and me. And they asked me, how do you think she's doing? I said, well, she's a really smart kid. She learned to read at two years old. I'm not kidding about this, by the way, she did. She was, and she's really smart, but you know, something's not right. She was born prematurely. She was, she's a very selective eater, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then here I am with the school psychologist looking at me and going, does she look you in the eye? And my, I just went like my jaw hit the floor. I was like, what? <laughs> like, cause I'd always heard about autism and assumed the pediatrician would tell me the pediatrician never said anything ever, never checked her, nothing that I'm aware of. So here I am. I'm just staring at her going, really? And does she? Yeah, she looks me in the eye. She looks me in the eye and they're like, well, let's get her evaluated and we'll do a social workup as well, blah, blah, blah. So we did. And within a few months, yeah, they said she had autism. And I remember it being a day of huge amount of grieving. I was so worried for her and what her life would be. But she did phenomenally well. She did really well. And later she got diagnosed with ADHD at the pediatrician's office because I told him I walked in there with a letter and everything and said, we are talking about ADHD. And he's like, okay, okay. So she got on medication for that. And then later when she was 13 and a half, I'd been asking for 10 years. What about Becky's walking gait? Is everything okay? I feel like something's not right. I've been saying this and saying this in different specialist appointments. I took her to all sorts of people, developmental pediatrician. She went to OT after that. Yeah, no, no one said anything. Didn't think much of it. Becky, we got her into a personal training session because she wasn't moving a lot. And I was like, you got to exercise. You got to move. You got to move. So she's on an elliptical machine in front of me and the trainer's sitting there beside her. And I looked, I could see Becky's ankles were squishy on the machine. And I'm like, what? that's not normal. And the, the trainer said, Oh, she probably needs orthotics. Okay. Well, we ended up going to an orthopedic surgeon ultimately. And I went in and I said very quietly under my breath, yeah, some orthotics. Is it possible? This is CP. I was very, very quiet because Becky's right next to me and she's, you know, 11 at the time. Uh, well, if it is, it's really, really, really mild. Nothing. All right, fine. Yeah, just go get the orthotics, see what they do, come back for a rescript in a couple of years. Okay. 
So we went back for a rescript in a couple of years, different doctor in the practice. She had Becky run up and down the hallway and walk up and down the hallway. And as we're both watching, she's the doctor's right beside me. And she turns to me as I might, my eyes go wide as I'm watching Becky's gate, really looking very challenging. And I'm like, uh, and she said to me, how early was she? And I went, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. I was like, She's 13 and a half. How is this possible now? And so here we are with a diagnosis of, it was mild, but it was, it, she has spasticity. She showed me Becky's ankle. She was like, see, boom. And then I had to, t I'm talking to her. And then beside me is Becky going, mom, what's going on? <sighs> How do you explain that to your teenager? How do you do that? It's that, that was really hard. I couldn't sugarcoat it. I couldn't, the doctor, thankfully, jumped in and, and was very good with her, but that was awful. So, I mean, that was my journey for a mom who doesn't have means, who doesn't have the education and society has done nothing but pull them down. They wouldn't be diagnosed with anything right now. They wouldn't, unless they had reached out. If they reached out to me, I'm very honest. I'm very honest with them. I ask them questions. I have a mom that I have been texting with on WhatsApp. She's in Africa and her child is having a lot of problems at three years old. And I said, okay, you need to ask these doctors. And I'm like listing questions there. I mean, this is how we have to do it. But she, it, she's feeling like nobody's listening. And I'm like, you are the expert. You are the expert. It takes a lot to become the expert and believe it. Where can people find support? Where can they find you? Well, I am on a website called preemieworld.com. So that's P-R-E-E-M-I-E -E world, W-O-R-L-D.com. That's my main company. We have lots of free items on the website that people can download. We've got newsletters and everything. I'm also on inspire.com and inspire.com has a free online community that I've run for probably about what, 14, 15 years. And it's basically the inspire premium community. We have like 64,000 families on there online. And we're of course on social media, but the Alliance, the Alliance for black Nikki families is also, it has its website and it's, blacknicufamilies.org and they should go there and yeah those are some places to reach out the biggest thing is I, I have to be really clear that these families sometimes have to figure out on their own what's going on they can't expect a doctor to spend 10 minutes with them and assume and assess that child so properly they've got to come to the appointments armed with information this is happening. This is, and they have to be vocal. That's another thing I've noticed. I've had to be real, like with the pediatrician, like we are talking about ADHD. I had to repeat myself several times. So he finally heard me because he probably hears complaints all day long. That's the whole, that when, when the doctors submit to insurance, they always have to put down chief complaint. Okay. I gave him his chief complaint. <laughs> so I made it very clear. So that's important. Deputy Senza 
It has been a joy spending time with you. Thank you so much for all that you've done. You've turned something that was potentially a really difficult situation for your family into a gift to all of us. Thank you. Thank you. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.